Uh, well, welcome again to Bethany West Seattle. My name is Prentice. Uh, I get the privilege to be uh, the pastor here. I uh, hope you all had a good uh, Thanksgiving. <clears throat> See, many are still out and about uh, visiting family and traveling, and so many safety and, and blessings on them. Uh, this morning, uh, we start, uh, well, not start, we, we continue uh, a series on Romans called uh, The Way Forward. Uh, and going into this, I was really nervous uh, about this morning, about this chapter uh, in chapter 9. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of a heads up, uh, Romans chapter 9 is considered one of the most uh, controversial chapter uh, in all of the New Testaments. Uh, and as we talk about it, we will uh, we'll see why that is. Uh, and I have a little bit of a uh, strong feeling towards it, so uh, hopefully I won't show my cards too much. Uh, but that is in uh, Romans chapter 9, where we will ask the question about what does mercy look like in our lives? Where in our lives have we experienced mercy and grace? And, and then in return, what does that look like for our own lives? And <clears throat> Romans chapter 9 uh, deals with that uh, tremendously. Uh, and, and it's so complex and so profound that even when I was in seminary, there was an entire, cha- uh, entire class for the whole year dedicated just to Romans chapter 9. Uh, and so for those of you that are familiar with this, <clears throat> and those of you that have your strong feelings and have done your own studies and, and you're you know, taking notes and, and writing down all the ways you disagree with me, uh, that's okay. Uh, but just know that obviously not everything can be covered uh, this morning. But hopefully what we'll do is we'll get to a place where we can see what, what does this mean for all of us. All of us. Uh, and so uh, let me read the passage uh, to, to kind of get us going. Then I'll pray uh, and we'll get to work. And so the passage is this in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 through 5 kind of sets it all up. Uh, And again, this morning we will go uh, essentially verse by verse, but it says this, uh, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I hope as we read this, you can hear Paul's heart. Paul's heart is in anguish. I wish... These people would just know what I know. I wish these people, uh, my fellow Jews, Israelites, would just hold on and grasp what is available to them. They are Israelites. To them, they belong. I love that word, belong. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. It's yours. Take it. And yet, many are not. So let's pray real quick. God, thank you so much. 
for what your word has to say to us, no matter what we believe about it, no matter how we study it. God, we know that this is a universal truth that belongs to everybody, that your love covers and overwhelms, and you chase us, you kick down in order to be with us and love us and to be compassionate towards us. We thank you for that. May your mercy upon our lives bear fruit in the way we show mercy upon others. In your name we pray. Amen. So last year, uh, to give you an example of mercy, uh, last year, uh, and I think I've told the story before, but I remember uh, I was in my office in Green Lake, because there's multiple offices. I was in my office in Green Lake, uh, and it was lunchtime, and I was driving to one of my favorite restaurants of all times, uh, and it's a restaurant called Bongo's, okay? So if you're familiar with Green Lake, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Many of you uh, are already sal- salivating because I said that word, uh, but, it, but it's just delicious food. And I remember I was so hungry, I got into my car, uh, and I started driving, you know, probably a little bit, little bit faster than I should uh, to get to the restaurant, uh, and I remember as I was driving, though I was going fairly fast, uh, the, the light was yellow, okay? Uh, and, and any other time when I'm not so hungry, the yellow may have been defined as something else. So for, for many people, and what we have learned is that when, when the light turns yellow, the, the meaning is you slow down, right? You slow down because red is about to come and, and to take caution. So, uh, so usually... Uh, that is the meaning. This day, uh, the meaning changed a little bit because I was so hungry. Yellow for me meant hurry up. It's about to turn red. You need to order your food, so drive fast. And so I've, this conversation, this internal dialogue was happening in my own mind uh, as I was driving. Uh, and, and as I was going through the light, the, the yellow light turned red. And so I drove right through a, a red light in a pretty busy intersection on, on Aurora. Uh, and lo and behold, as I was driving, there was a police officer that was going the other direction. And I said, well, uh, maybe he didn't see that. Next thing I know, the, the officer pulls a U-turn, turns on the lights, uh, and, and pulls me over. I said, okay, well... Uh, there's nothing really I can say about that. I ran a red light. Uh, and so he said, you know, rolls down the window and says, do you know why you got pulled over? And I said, I said, well, I don't know. Why did I get pulled over? Uh, and he told me I ran a red light. And he said, okay, uh, as usual, let me see your license, registration, proof of insurance. Uh, and I showed him my license. I had my tabs. <clears throat> and unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have my insurance registration. I had insurance but I didn't have the paperwork for it or the, or the evidence. And he gave me that, okay. And he walked back to his car. Uh, a few minutes later, he comes back and he says, okay, you ran a red light. You don't have evidence of your or proof of insurance. Uh, do you also know that your tabs expired two months ago? Uh, and, and I said, oh, I, and actually I, I hadn't. I just, it just slipped my mind. And I said, well, officer, to, to be honest, <laughs> No, I, I, I didn't. And, and so here I am. I'm pulled over. I ran a red light. I don't have proof of insurance. Uh, my towels have expired for over two months. And he says, here's a warning. Now get all that stuff taken care of. 
And I remember, and I still have the, the piece of paper that was just a warning in my car to this day, because if I think about God's mercy, uh, I said to myself, that day I experienced God's mercy. Uh, I ran a red light. I didn't have proof of insurance. I didn't have my, my, my tabs expired. Anybody else, any other day, I should have received a ticket and probably multiple tickets. Uh, and I remember posting it on Facebook and like, oh my gosh, God is so merciful. And my friend who's a police officer said, wow, I would have taken you in. I was like, oh, well, that puts in even more light uh, of how merciful I feel like God was that day. And, and, and I compared it to just yesterday, and I was preparing this opening illustration before yesterday happened. We were driving back uh, from the Cougs game uh, where they played that other team. Uh, and I was really upset because, you know, again, the good guys lost again. Uh, and so I'm driving back. And I get pulled over. Now, this is a little bit of a confession, and I feel kind of bad. Your pastor does not speed and break the law all the time, okay? I, it was just a stretch of the highway that goes on forever. I may have gone over a little bit. Officer comes and says, sir, do you, do you know how fast we're going? And I was like, no, why don't you tell me? Uh, and he, he gave me a number, which I won't disclose. Uh, and, and, and I remember thinking back, and I had this 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 warning of mercy that I experienced. And then the officer, believe it or not, came back, rolled down my window, and guess what he did? He gave me a ticket, okay? Because I deserve to get a ticket. And I compare the two ideas, and the idea that Paul is talking about, so real quick, preliminary work is this, grace is a Greek word that we see all over the New Testament, it is charis. And the name Karis, we even see the name Grace, and we see the name Karis. It's funny, as the generations go, a lot of the good Christians, they name their daughter Grace. Uh, and then they decide, oh, well, Grace is a little too played out. There's too many Graces in the world, so now we're going to use Karis. Uh, don't be fooled, though. It's the same word. Uh, so we have Karis. Uh, and the word charis means this, to receive something you do not deserve. So the word charis in English, a better transliteration is C-H-A-R-I-S, uh, C-H-A-R-I-S, yes, where we get the word charity. Uh, and it's like a gift, like a birthday present. Church, your birthday, you don't necessarily deserve this just because you were born, but I'm going to give you a gift. I mean, we can all think about things that we've received that we, we didn't deserve, we didn't earn it, but we received it as a gift. Many times God gives us gifts. We talk about salvation as a gift. Our relationship with God is a gift. But then there's a, a, another word that oftentimes is used synonymously, which it's okay because it comes from the same principle, uh, is this. It's mercy. There's grace and there's mercy. And mercy is a Greek word, elios. Uh, and, and it's a little bit of a trans, uh, like, a, like a converse uh, definition than, than, than grace. It says, not receiving something you do deserve. So we all know what grace is. We've all experienced grace and, and a free gift. But mercy is something we actually do deserve, yet don't get because of God's mercy. And, and so the example of this was me being pulled over. And I should have gotten a ticket, like I did yesterday, because I deserved the ticket. 
Yet last year, for whatever reason, I was shown mercy by God, by the police officer, uh, that I should have gotten all these tickets, and yet I, did, I deserved it, but I didn't get it. I was shown mercy. And, and here in Romans chapter 9, he says, I'm speaking truth in Christ. Paul's saying, I'm not lying. I would give up my own life, essentially. In verse 2, he says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people according to the flesh. And so what Paul is saying is, God offers grace. God offers mercy. And yet, contextually, what is happening is that there's these Jewish people, his own people, uh, rejecting, not everybody, but some rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Uh, rejecting the ways, the free gift, the, and the mercy uh, that God has offered to even the Jews, and yet they were rejecting it. Uh, they continue to live their old life with, light, with laws and Torah, and uh, the way to God in the Jewish mind is through obedience, and not just obedience in a person, but obedience in, in, a, in things, and like things to do in a, in a list of behavior. And, and what Paul is saying, there's a new way now, through Christ, it is not about those things, it's about this person. Will you receive? And, and some of the people said no, and Paul's heart is just anguished. He's saying, oh, I wish I can give up my own life in order that my friends, my own people, would just grab on to the mercy that they have already been shown. He says that are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. You belong to Christ. Will you live like it? You belong to God. Will you behave like it? And many of them say no. And so what we see... Uh, it is Israel's unfaithfulness uh, is an example here uh, and even all throughout the scriptures. And, and I know this is kind of what I would call Christianese, so I'll kind of unpack very shortly. Uh, uh, we see examples of Israel's unfaithfulness all over scripture. And when Paul is saying, look, fellow Jews, fellow Israelites, you are, have been unfaithful. You have not received God's mercy. You have not received God's grace. And, and all throughout chapter 9, he's quoting and, and referring back to the Old Testament. Uh, for example, the old golden calf. When Moses goes up to the mountain and the people are down there just waiting and waiting and waiting. And Moses and Aaron, they don't come down. And, and they start to panic. And they say, you know what, God's, you know, God's not real. God has us waiting. God is not for us. God is against us. And so we need something to worship. Side note, we all worship something. Okay, we all worship something. It doesn't matter what religion you call yourself. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself even an atheist. We all worship something. And so we see this from the beginning of time where they're like, okay, if we can't worship God... Because we're supposed to hear from God, but we don't hear from God. We don't hear from our, uh, our leader Moses, from Aaron. They're nowhere to be found. And so since we as a human being, as a people, Israelites, need to worship something and we can't depend on God, we're going to build ourselves like a monument, an icon for us to worship. And that was idolatry. That was breaking the ten, one of the Ten Commandments. And so uh, Paul, over the, all over the scriptures, says... 
Israelites, my own people, you have been unfaithful. You have not received God's mercy all over the place, all over throughout time. Not just right now, but remember the golden calf. Remember wandering in the desert. Uh, when, when God was leading the Israelites uh, from Egypt into Canaan, into the promised land, and, and it took a little bit longer than they expected, uh, many decades later, and, and, and throughout the time of wandering, people doubted God, people fell off, people went back, people died, people gave up, they bowed out, they said, God, you don't actually love us, you don't actually care, and they rejected God. And all the way from the New Testament to the New Testament, the prodigal son, where a prodigal son is a story about humanity and God. How God has offered us so much, not only free gifts of mercy, but, but even, or, or of grace, but even mercy, and yet we still run away. We still run away, even though there's so much beauty and so much grace and so much mercy that's offered to us, and yet we run away because we think we know better than receiving and latching onto what God has for us in our own lives. We run away like the prodigal son. And yet we can see Paul is just so anguished. And what we have to realize that throughout chapter 9 is there's a context between that where he says, uh, he, redress, he addresses the Jews, but he also addresses uh, the Gentiles. And so now there's a question in Romans chapter 9 that Paul is answering. First, Paul is addressing uh, the Israelites' unfaithfulness for not latching onto God's grace and God's mercy. Even though Jews, Israelites, my people, even though you have throughout history rejected God, and not just rejected God, but have completely went against God uh, by doing the very opposite things or, being, or doing the very antithetical things that God has called us to do. And yet, Paul is saying, but do you understand? God still loves you, and God is still for you. Will you still, even in the midst of all of this, latch on? Paul is anguished. And yet, so there's part B, Paul is addressing that. But yet, also in chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul addresses the Gentiles. And what Paul is saying to the Gentiles, a different group that they've clashed with, Jews and Gentiles, they've clashed during this time, Remember about Claudius, if you're new, you got to listen to the sermons before, but there is a lot of beef between the Gentiles and the Jews. And what's happening is the Gentiles are saying, okay, well, they've missed the boat. The Jews have missed the boat. They're, they've had their chance, and they're gone, right? Like, it's almost like if you're, the Gentiles are saying, uh, we're like you know, the new Jews, the, the Jewish people, that, that's old news. The Gentiles are in now. Like, we are God's chosen, right? Like, now we are going to take the place uh, of, of God's blessing and God's uh, grafting into salvation. It's not just for the Jews. The, the Gentiles are saying, now we are the ones. We're the ones that got it right. They're the ones that have failed. We're the ones that got it right. And, and so what Paul is doing, he's addressing both groups as A, Yes, you have got it wrong, my Jewish brothers and sisters, yet latch on. And yet then he goes to the Gentiles and says, uh, well, no, they're still in, but you're still in too. Like God has loved everybody as long as you receive and take part uh, in what God has to offer. He's trying to set two groups 
straight. And you can see kind of the attitude of the Gentiles. You can even kind of guess what that would be. Like, what are you talking about? They have missed the, they've had their chance. They did everything wrong. They've been asked to do this, but they continue to the opposite, not just today, but all throughout history. And you're saying they're still in? I mean, this is the context that Paul is working through. And so to that, to that question, uh, Paul says this, uh, it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the, prom- uh, of the promise are counted as descendants. So he's talking to the Jews, and he's saying, you know what, uh, He's talking to the Jews and saying, you know what, now it's not about, you have to latch, here's what you need to latch on to, my Jewish brothers and sisters. It's not about you being grafted in because of uh, essentially your nationality. There's a new way that God is working, and it's through the person of Jesus. It is through Jesus and Jesus only that you can receive salvation in a beautiful life, in a change of life, uh, in a life that is abundant life that starts today. And it's not just through being a descendant, but it's through being grafted by the person of Jesus. And then in verse 9, it says, For this is what the promise said. About this time I will return, uh, and Sarah shall have a son. So, so Paul's giving an example of God's blessing and mercy. If you remember the Old Testament story, again, he refers to the Old Testament many times. Uh, and Sarah and Abraham were like, we're, we can never have children. We can never have children. Uh, and not only that, Abraham had, had gone against God's will. He had sinned. So that's, there's a whole story behind that. And he says, remember that? And Sarah shall have a son. Nor is it all until Sarah did have a son. Uh, something similar happened, and also something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac. And so, so this is where it gets a little... Interesting. Verse 11 says, even before they had been born, so talking about uh, Rebecca's children, uh, or had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, by his call, uh, she was told the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, so it was written somewhere else uh, in Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I've loved Jacob and I've hated Esau. And and so for centuries, literally for centuries, uh, people have taken this verse uh, and and read it as if this was a plan for individual human salvation. And and so even to this day, different denominations, if you're new to church or maybe you're unfamiliar, many denominations have been birthed out of these verses alone. Uh, particularly what I would call uh, the, the Calvinist or Calvinism. Uh, and I always make a joke and I say, you know what? These days people are more Calvinists than John Calvin ever was. Uh, and, and so a little bit about John Calvin. He was a 16th century theologian. Uh, and he took these verses and really popularized uh, by Augustine, not Augustine, Augustine. 
he, he popularized what he was already saying, was, which was in response to the Catholic tradition. So this was all good intentions. And so therefore, it was called Reform Theology or, some, or, or the Reformation. Right? He, he was reforming what people had already believed about God, which is you can buy forgiveness, you can do good works uh, in order to receive salvation, uh, and, and all these things. And what, uh, along with Martin Luther and other theologians, including John Calvin, what he's saying is uh, it was kind of going to the opposite extreme. John Calvin was saying you can't, when he was reforming the, the ideology of, of that day in the 16th century, you can't buy God's love. You can't uh, do good works in order to receive salvation. You can't do things uh, where God will love you more or do things where God will love you less. There's nothing you can do. It's not about you. God has loved you just the way you are and created you to be that way. Uh, and yet, Yes, loves you, not for you to stay the same, but to continue transforming, which is another Christianese word called sanctification. We don't, we're not going to talk about that today. <clears throat> but what John Calvin is saying is going to the opposite extreme, responding to what was happening during the Reformation period. <clears throat> There's nothing you can actually do to receive God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. And he gives this example. He says, look what it says in Romans. He says, uh, he says, look, Esau I hated. Jacob I've loved. It was before they did anything at all. And so through this idea, uh, predestination slash election was born. This idea where, uh, you know what? And this is, I guess, what would be called Calvinism uh, in many Reformed traditions to this day is, not only is there nothing you can do to receive God's grace and mercy, uh, God, just like Jacob and Esau before they were born, had already, okay, had already, this, this is a controversial part, had already selected people to go to heaven or to go to hell. And, and some people, so that's called uh, predestination or double, these are kind of big words, we're getting kind of heavy this morning, double predestination, meaning God, uh, because there's nothing you can do, uh, it's already been chosen for you. God has selected you, this is the idea of predestination, uh, to go to heaven or to go to hell, so that's double predestination. And so some other reformers would say, well, we don't believe in double predestination, that God predestined some to go to heaven, some to go to hell, we believe in just a single predestination that God has only selected people to go to heaven. Well, that's just a nice way of really saying double predestination, where if God has chosen these people to go to heaven, then clearly they have been deselected to go to heaven, therefore hell. And so this is the idea of predestination that we see today. And many of my friends, uh, faithful Christians, even pastors, uh, adhere to to Calvinism. Uh, they would say that they are in the Reformed tradition. Uh, my ordination, my background was in the Presbyterian Church, which is, uh, generally speaking, Reformed theology. Uh, but this uh, is where I would depart from my friends uh, who would profess and, and subscribe to Calvinism because what we have to understand uh, in this text in Romans chapter 9 is two things. Is we have to look at... Uh, the idea that this was a corporate letter. Hey, this was a corporate letter. 
It was talking about a corporate body, not just an individual person. And so the problem with today, as we read all of Scripture, uh, or much of Scripture, is that we read it like it's this personal letter that was written to us, or, or, or to me, uh, the, the me, the individual, and, and that was never the case. Uh, even when Paul was writing, oftentimes in the English language, we see, uh, you know, like, God loves you, uh, or, you know, God has given his life for you. And so in the Western idea, in this very individualistic society, we see the word you, and we say, oh, that, <laughs> that's me. God loves me, and God died for me. And, and yes, all that is true. But when we actually read the, the original text, it's you, uh, often, mo- if not all the time, I have to double check, is, is in the plural. And, and so many people will joke and say, well, you know, God was written in, writing, or Paul was writing in uh, Southern. Like, he's actually Southern, because we can't really read it as you, you got to read it as y'all, right? So if you're from the South, uh, that is, maybe Paul was read it, writing to the people in the South. I don't know. Uh, but that was a terrible joke. Nobody laughed, so I'm going to move on. The you has always been plural. And so what we have to read it and how we read it is, oh, Paul isn't just talking to me. Paul is talking to a a body, a collection of people, i.e. the church. And so we have to first understand that. And we have to understand the context. Romans chapter 9 talks, uh, if you're new to church, I'm so sorry, this is kind of a nerdy conversation, uh, but it's really important and we'll get to why this matters. In Romans chapter 9, Paul refers much to the Old Testament, especially in Malachi chapter 1. And when he talks about Esau, when he talks about Jacob, he's not just talking about the individual Esau, he's not just talking about the individual Jacob. See, what happened uh, in the Old Testament, so again, we have to read it in context or a corporate lens, is that uh, when Rebekah birthed uh, two babies, there was essentially two nations that was birthed. Esau is known to be the father of the Edomites, the ones who hated the Jews, the ones who uh, rebelled against God, the Edomites. Uh, and, and, and so the Bible often uses uh, hyperbolic language. That's all, that's all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, so it's this word hate. It doesn't literally mean hate. It's actually the same word uh, as when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must hate your mother and father. Now, no, now Jesus, if Jesus actually meant you should hate your mother and father, he's contradicting himself because... A, you should love everybody, let alone your mother and father. That's even part of the Old Testament. Honor your uh, mother and father. And so it couldn't have meant Jesus saying, actually, look, you want to follow me? You have to hate. Hate's a strong word. I know it's a strong word. But you need to hate your mom and dad in order to love me. Now, Jesus never meant that. It was hyperbolic language saying, I come first. Even within your own family, yes, you should love them. You should honor them. This is going to be hard to hear, but you should love me first and foremost. And and with that same uh, word, hate, uh, Paul says, God hated Esau. God hated Esau. Not hated as in hatred, but as in, well, they were against God. 
they're going to get what they received. Not God. Uh, and, and so uh, God hated Esau in that same sense that God says, hate your mother and father, uh, which is not really hate. Uh, and then he says, but I loved Jacob, which would be the father of Israel. And so, again, if we take this into a, a lens through uh, the collective rather than the individual, what Paul is saying is very radical and is very subversive. He's saying even the, though the Jews have failed, even though they have missed the mark, even though all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, which was an example of the prodigal son, which was the, the wandering in the desert, how they all left God, was the uh, golden calf. Even though they have all failed and rejected and said peace out to God, Paul says, yet even so, even so, God will have mercy on them. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy? Who has Elias? Who gives, though we may not deserve? I've chosen Israel, no matter what. And so oftentimes these verses are read uh, through the lens of, well, who has God rejected? Who, has, who, who wasn't good enough for God? Who has God predestined to go to hell or not be with God forever and ever? Many people, we read, we read these verses through that lens when the opposite is true. We shouldn't be focusing on who God rejected, but man, look at who God loved. And, and look who God had mercy on. The point here is not about God's rejection, but it's about God's radical acceptance. Now, this is a, a crazy way for many of us to look at this passage because oftentimes it's about this finite selection. Either you're in or you're out. It's yes or you're No. That's not what God, that's not what Paul is intending to say. Paul is intending to say, look, everybody belongs. They just need to grasp. There's no way this could have been about this idea of predestination or, or, or selection that God has already selected and made a blueprint plan of what's going to happen because you can see the argument that Paul is having uh, regarding God. He's saying, God wants you to change. God wants you to live a different life. God wants you to latch on to the mercy that God has offered you. Now, how can this be about this kind of determinism or, or, uh, or predestination when he's asking the people to change. Now, if this was the idea of predestination, why, to me, the question is, why would Paul ask someone to change and why would God want them to change if God's the one that predestined them to be that way? I, I don't know. Like, that's very conflicting to me. And so the reality, at least the way I read this, is that this mercy was offered to everybody and that's what was offensive, it was offensive because these people who have rejected God, who've hated God, who've done nothing but done the opposite of what God wants, yet God still says, I forgive you, I show you mercy, I love you, come to me. That was offensive. 
And, and oftentimes grace and mercy uh, is not offensive to the person who receives it, but the person who sees it. I mean, we've seen this before. A great example of this is a prodigal son. We talked about the prodigal son, but we see that the son comes back because the father has shown him compassion and mercy. Just to set the story just a little bit for those of you that don't know, here's this, here's this son who says, Dad, uh, I want my inheritance now. Now, in, in the first century, when a, when a son or daughter asked for inheritance before the parents died, it means, Dad, I want you to be dead. It was offensive. And, and so the, the, the dad gave the son exactly what he wanted, broke his heart, and says, Yet I love you. And so I give to you my inheritance. And, and the son takes that inheritance, squanders it, it says, does all the wrong things with it, uh, wastes it, and now he has no money. He's eating out of the trough where the pigs eat out of. That's how poor he's become. And he goes to the father, and the father sees him uh, running. And this was another radical and offensive statement in the Jewish culture, was that when this quote-unquote peasant son, who was once eating out of the trough, out of the same pigs, was running towards the king, the father, the, the, the dad, says that the dad was running back with his arms embraced. Now, in the first century, that never happened. The king stays where the king is supposed to be at the throne, and the peasant comes to the king. The king never gets up, let alone runs. And there was that radical mercy. And the son says, you know what? I will be your servant, because being your servant is better than eating out of the same dish as the pig. So, uh, dad, forgive me. I'm so sorry. You know what? I'll pay the consequences. I will just be your servant. And the dad says, don't be ridiculous. I'm not going to give you what you deserve, which what you deserve is consequences and punishment and whatever it is. I'm going to show you favor and grace and love, and I'm going to throw you a party. A party. You get to be celebrated because now you have come back. You have latched on to my mercy. You get a party. Now, we see that as the main story, as if that's the end of the story. Good point. Everybody uh, listen up. Have a nice day. But what we don't pay attention to is the brother. The brother is angry. And the brother's response is, Dad, what the heck? I didn't do that. I didn't leave. I didn't squander your inheritance. I didn't ask you to die. And yet he gets a party. And I, what about me? Hello? Dad, I... I'm the good guy. I, I didn't do all of that, and yet he gets a party. And so oftentimes a person receiving mercy and grace, that's not offensive. They're like, yes, thank you. And, but oftentimes uh, it's the person on the sidelines, which I would say is many of us, where receiving the grace and mercy isn't offensive. Seeing somebody receive the grace and mercy is and so many of us, we have an attitude of, what the heck? I've done all of this, and it's this idea of entitlement. We're like the brother. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking out against. He's not talking about the separation of who haves and have not, salvation and not salvation. He's shown this radical statement saying, 
God will have mercy upon whoever God wants to have mercy on. God will have compassion on whoever God wants to have compassion on. And essentially, that's even the bad guys. That's even the good guys. That's even the people you hate. That's people that have hurt you. That's people that look differently than you. That people that make different types of money than you, that have different jobs than you. Guess what? It's not just you. It's everybody. And that's offensive because many of us are like, well, what do they do? Especially Christians. You know what? As a fellow Christian, I have to call us out on that. We have this attitude of, look, I worship God. I I have my quiet times in the morning. I go to church on Sundays. Why don't I have these things? Because we get entitled. We get entrapped. We get trapped with entitlement. And then we see other people with blessings and, and, and receiving the mercy. And we're like, well, what do they do? And, and how this plays out in our own lives is the fact that yet we have shown mercy and been given much mercy, and yet we have such a hard time giving it away because of that entitlement issue. Because we're like, God, nope, that person doesn't deserve mercy. I know I do, but they don't. Have you been shown mercy in your life? And for all of us, I may not know your story, but I do know the answer is Yes. The answer is yes, you have been shown mercy. You know what the example of mercy is? The ultimate example of mercy is the cross. Jesus' life and death and resurrection was for all of us. And it's for us to receive and to latch onto and cling to and say yes to. Just like Paul was saying, I'm anguished that my friends aren't seeing the message here. And the message is this, we've all been shown mercy. There was, you know, since the beginning of time, there was a separation between us and God. And through the person of Jesus, we have been reconciled. Now, we can live a beautiful and more fruitful life. We can live a life that is with God because God is for us and will never abandon us. We can live a life of salvation, not just this place where we go after we die, though that is true, uh, but this beautiful uh, salvific life even today. Just latch on to it because we have been shown mercy And yet, so then the question is, who do you need to show mercy to today? And we have all this entitlement issues. Well, they didn't work that hard. I deserve this. Well, they didn't go through the same things I went through. They didn't go to the same college that I went to. They don't have the same job that I have. They don't look like the way, you know, I look. They don't behave the way I behave. So on with them. The reality is that's much of our attitudes. Whether we say that or not, I know sometimes that's mine. Like, God, are you kidding me? The things that I've done, I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes. I've given my life to share about your love. Why don't I get this? Why did this happen to me? Why does that person get this? Why does that person get that? And we play this comparison game, which destroys our relationship with God. But it isn't until we truly understand that we've received and been given mercy like those Jews when Paul says, why haven't you gotten it? Why haven't you gotten it? It's not until the point that we get it that we get to give it away. I I read this story about the the travesty that's happening in, in California with the fires where there's this one family who lived in a a multi-million dollar mansion and lost it all. And overnight, they became homeless. They literally had a tent. 
And, and the story goes that they, uh, the article goes that they set up a tent in near like a homeless encampment. And they set up next to other people that have been homeless for, for many years and years and years, not just due to the fire, but just because they were homeless. And yet in that row, everybody was in need. And everybody realized it. The very person who once lived in a mansion, who once had all the fancy cars and who knows, all the money, I don't know their story, but who essentially in the world's eyes had it all, now is in the same playing field. Now realizes that he and them and she, they're in need. And this is an indictment on them. The point of it is, is that suddenly... Everyone is equally in need of a savior. Do you know that you have been shown mercy? Hey, I'm going to actually invite the worship team back up as we reflect. Where have you been shown mercy? And if, you, if you're racking your brain on trying to figure out, God, where have you shown me mercy? Let me just tell you this right now. We've all been shown mercy through the cross. That though uh, we deserve to be separated from God, yet God intervenes through the person of Jesus, dies on the cross to make this bridge complete for us to be in union with Christ forever and ever. Will you latch on to that? And as you latch on to that, then will you ask yourself, who do I need to show mercy to? There are people in your life that you even need to forgive. That who you need to make a phone call to. Uh, are there people in your life that you have to say, you know what, you have even hurt me, but I've been shown mercy. And I extend that to you. Show me the person who's received and acknowledges mercy, and I'll show you the person who freely gives it away. Show me the person who is resentful, can't forgive, oftentimes me and I'll show you the person who hasn't truly grasped the unconditional grace and mercy that has been offered that has been offered in Romans 10 and 11 the conversation goes they're not finished yet so continue to have mercy God is not finished with that person that you have a hard time showing mercy to God is not finished with you have mercy upon yourself God is not finished. Why should we be finished with that? God has shown you mercy. Will you show it back? Will you not, and myself included, not have a hard time showing mercy because God will have mercy. God has already had mercy. God has mercy. This is the ironic part. God has mercy and forgiveness and love and grace for the very person that you can't and that you don't. What's the problem? Yeah, we're stuck in this own imprisonment of resentment. And I always talk about Nelson Mandela. He had every reason to be resentful. And he says, resentment is like drinking poison yourself, believing it's going to hurt the other person. I'm going to drink poison because I think it's going to hurt you. That's what resentment is. And yet Paul is saying, will you latch on to the mercy? that God has extended to you because as you latch onto that, 
may you give it away. May you give it away. May we give away the very things we received and didn't receive. We receive grace, the things that we don't deserve. We, we receive mercy, didn't get the things we do deserve. Can we give that away? And maybe practically speaking, there's that one person that you're thinking about. Ouch, like that's, that's difficult. I can, get, I can grasp the broader message of this. Okay, you know what? I should love and I should give and I should be compassionate because God did that for me. Well, who is that one person you cannot forgive? Maybe there's a phone call. Maybe there's a coffee. Maybe there's, I don't know what it is, but maybe there's something in there where we reach out and extend the same mercy that we have received ourselves. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and the ways that you have been so gracious and so merciful to us. May we emulate that and give that away freely. God, will you convict us of people in our lives that we need to extend mercy to? Whether it's a people group, whether it's a person, whether it's a family member, maybe it's even a spouse, whether it's this barrier of resentment, may mercy just break that down and, and create and become a pathway to intimacy. love you. Give us strength. Give us courage. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in worship.